try to find a way to make your own project of some sort, no matter what the size of it is. That will teach you so much about, I think, yourself and your own limitations, your strengths, your weaknesses as it relates to work as a whole. Creating your own project uh, is kind of one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself because one, it establishes, or it can establish you, I should say, as a brand, like as a designer, you can establish yourself that way by creating your own project. Hello, and welcome to Design Adjacent, the podcast that talks about the nexus of design, both today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny F. Johnson. And today our guest is a designer, a strategist, podcaster, and commentator who's based in Atlanta, Georgia today, but really thinks about the world around him. I'm really honored to bring to Design Adjacent today none other than our good friend, Maurice Cherry. He's been an incredible force in the design community as a pioneering digital creator, but he's also known for his very well-received, well-known, and Smithsonian-regarded podcast, Revision Path. It's an award-winning podcast that was the first one to be actually added to the permanent collection of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Maurice's projects, his overall design work and advocacy have been recognized by leading organizations such as Apple, Adobe, NPR, Design Observer, The Entrepreneur, Print Magazine, and AIGA. Sometimes it's great to use others' words to really sum up. And I, in this moment, there's some words that I think really set the frame and do justice for Maurice. And this is from 2018, April for being a Renaissance talent whose work seamlessly crosses cultural domains and editorial lines and multiple forms of media, for being a definitive leader in bringing Black designers to the public, earning you a unique and permanent place in the history of design, design equity, and social justice. Those are the words that recognized Maurice when he won AIGA Stephen Heller Prize for commentary. So today I'd like to welcome to Design Adjacent, Maurice Cherry. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, what an intro. Well-deserved. It's interesting when, when we talk about design adjacency and I think about your path and how it brings together all these forms. There's a point in time where you were involving always journalism and writing, looking at technology and design and kind of unapologetically looking at those intersections. What really brought you into design? Probably two things. One, technology mm -hmm. uh, definitely brought me into design. In elementary school, having access to Apple IIe computers and learning okay. how to do programming with BASIC was kind of my big introduction into design as a whole. And with that, I would say probably computer games and video games are close relatives to that, you right. know, anything with Broderbund software, Carmen Sandiego, Nintendo, okay. Mario Brothers, that sort of stuff. But then also, uh, I would have to say magazines, and this is something probably that shaped mm. my interest in design more into my, probably going into my teens. I'm from the, the country. I'm from Selma, Alabama. And a lot of the access that I had to pretty much the world outside of right. Alabama was through magazines, through Lots of black magazines like Emerge and YSB and Five and The Source, but then also through Black Enterprise, through Ebony, Jet, 
and other publications, Time Magazine, Consumer Reports, et cetera, really seeing just how information is conveyed in so many different ways to so many different people. So I'd say that's probably been my second really big introduction into design. But together, it's funny, it's both analog and digital, right? Right. Those have been the two ways that have really shaped how I look at and approach design. One of the things that's interesting, I always think about this when I read about your background, you actually were a math major. <laughs> so I, right. I, I love that story you just told me of the path, but I'm going to dig in a little bit to talk about how does math bring that all together for you? <laughs> yeah, I have a, a degree in math from Morehouse College. How does it come together? You know, there actually is a lot of design that goes into mathematics. Like right. mathematics itself is is kind of, I think of mathematics as like the language of the world in terms of how it's used and applied in so many different ways, engineering, physics, et cetera. But even throughout my time of learning math, particularly when I was in college, math really teaches you how to think. And so a lot of the processes between like putting proofs together or sketching out conic solids in 3D space and things of this nature kind of forces you to really kind of warp your brain in very interesting ways. And when right. I say there's a lot of kind of design in math, there are these things where you're trying to come up with elegant solutions to right. tough problems, which isn't that what design is all about anyway, it, you know? It, it really is, right? And the similarities of approaching solutions in math and extending that over, especially if you're interested in gaming and coding and computer technology, it, it makes perfect sense as you talk through it. But I wonder, you know, as you were going through your path, did you think that you'd be in this space where your love of words, your love of elegant solutions and a push for design would make your career today? No, not at mm -hmm. all. I would say, you know, back when I was in high school and even going into college, initially I wanted to go to high school for English. Right. I wanted to be an English major because I had done a lot of writing from second grade all the way up to 12th grade. Like I had taken college English courses. I took this course in children's literature and gotten college credit and everything for it. I had been published before I went to college. And so I really wanted to be a writer. My very first paid writing piece was in 1999 for a club AUC magazine, wow. AUC standing for the Atlanta University Center. And I really wanted to do that, but my mom was really adamant on me going into a field that would, you know, make some money. Right. Not to say that writing doesn't make money, but this is also around the time where the internet was really starting to become something in like the mid to late 90s. And I think that fueled with, I would say, probably inspiration from a different world and Dwayne Wayne kind okay. of uh, inadvertently pushed me more towards going into like engineering and the sciences. Like my mother is a biologist. My father was an engineer for General Electric. So it, it kind of had this push for me to go into something that was more of a hard science. Like writing is a, is a good hobby, right. but writing is not going to make you any money. Like you're good at math. You were captain of the math elites in high school. Like go do math. But when I first got to Morehouse, I actually majored in computer science and computer engineering mm -hmm. and did that for about a semester. And I remember going to my advisor at the time and telling him that I wanted to actually be a web designer. Like I wanted to right. design things for the web. And he told me kind of flat out that 
the web is a fad, like the internet, all this stuff is just a fad. Now, again, to put it in context, this is 1999. I'm at an HBCU telling my professor, computer science professor, I want to be a web designer. And he's like, we don't do that here. If that's what you want to do, you should probably change your major. And so I did. I changed my major over to math, really, because I sat down and looked at credits and I looked at the (laughs) Morehouse's course handbook. I'm thinking, well, what could I go into where I could still carry most of this stuff over? Because at this point, going into English would not have been a possibility because I was on two full scholarships to Morehouse for STEM. So I couldn't just break out of that and go into English because then I would have to start paying for college. So I guess in a way, it somewhat was a financial decision as well. But I always had this thing about writing, even throughout my career, as I've been a designer, mm-hmm. as I've started my studios, et cetera. I've still always done some type of writing on the side, whether it's as a columnist under a pseudonym, whether it's as a blogger or whether it's under my name and like a journal or something like that. I've always kind of had writing as part of my just sort of overall toolbox as a way to describe the work that I'm doing or the things that I'm seeing or the way that I'm feeling, just to take those things out of my head and put them onto the page. Just as you were describing your path and how you thought about the future, you talked about kind of both the, the digital impulse of what you were seeing, but also the analog experience in finding these moments, these cultural moments that showed you what was possible, right? Kind of outside of the space that you're in. You know, I, I think about as you started Revision Path, which was since we've talked about math, I'll be specific instead of saying almost 10 years, we'll say eight years ago. So <laughs> when you're working- Nine years, years by the time this comes out. We by the time nine this comes February. out, it'll be nine years. Close to a decade <laughs> ago, you start Revision Path. And in that moment, it's an opportunity to showcase creators of color, Black creatives, designers, design thinkers. At that moment, at that time, there really was a question about how many of us fill that space. Now, that was nine years ago. You're now, and I think we're above, you featured more than 400 creators of color. That's right. An impressive portfolio of content and interviews. But I asked the question today, when you started, did you think you had enough content for 400? And now that you do, what do you think <laughs> is next? When I started, I did not think that I had enough content for 400, but I knew that I could get there. Right. Because it would, to me, I just thought it would be a matter of networking and finding people because there were peers of mine who were designers. I had worked with other black designers throughout my career, which I have to say, I probably have the fortunate uh, experience of being in Atlanta. I've talked to many people on the show who have said, like, they've never worked with another black designer before. I've been fortunate to work with black designers throughout my career. But when I started Revision Path, it was really more about how can I find a way to showcase these people that I know are doing great work. Right. I had no idea it would get to, to 400 because at the time that I started, of course, there were uh, design podcasts out there, but you had things like The Great Discontent and right. other sorts of like online magazines that were featuring designers, but they weren't featuring black designers. Like maybe they'd feature one black designer a quarter or a year, maybe. So I I didn't know that I would get to this many, but I knew that we would be out there. It was just a matter of sort of staying the course. I think I can confidently say that now, nine years later, that that's the case. But (laughs) at the time I had 
you know, I had a, a, a list of people lined up and there were certainly folks that I had asked and some said yes, some said no. I think the most surprising part to me was how many people said no. Because when I started this, I really thought, oh, well, this is a platform. It's showcasing Black designers. Everybody I ask is going to say yes. And that is not the case <laughs> at all. Not at all. I'd say that's even the case to this day. I will ask people to come on the show and they'll say, I love what you're doing. It's a no for me. I'm like, okay. It's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, for our guest, I was deeply humbled and honored when you reached out to me to be guest number 375 mm -hmm. for the podcast. But as you've had 400 people and you've, you've been able to ask a ton of questions, are there any themes or throughputs that have really elevated from these conversations? You know, with 400 distinct career paths and voices, you know, as a hoster, there's anything that you've seen over the nine years that have really kind of been a throughput for this group? Oh, yeah. There's a, a few things. I'd say the first thing that I've noticed is definitely over the past maybe like five years, the rise of UX in terms of a viable career path for designers. As I started out interviewing people, there were, there were web designers, there were graphic designers, right. and print designers, et cetera. I'd say now, certainly, probably, I, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe one out of every 10 interviews on the podcast now is from someone in UX, like a product designer or something like that. So seeing how the titles have changed and how things have converged upon UX is really interesting because what that's done is it's opened up alternate sort of design paths that may not specifically be visual design, mm -hmm. but you still sit on a design team like Right. You're a UX researcher or you're a UX strategist or something like that. So I've seen the rise in user experience as a viable design career path over the past five years. I would also say one thing that I've seen is that mentorship is important, but sponsorship right. is really what a lot of Black designers need. And so the difference in that sort of mentorship sponsorship Right. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. The difference between mentorship and sponsorship. So mentorship, of course, in the sense that, that we know it is someone who may be a bit further than you are in your career path. Maybe they're at a higher career level or they've been in the industry longer that can sort of guide you along the way to not make certain pitfalls or decisions or things that could negatively affect your career. You know, they can sort of give you that guidance as they see it. Sponsorship, from what I'm finding is more important, is someone who is really an advocate for you right. in rooms and in conversations and in situations where you're not present. And so that's where I've seen a lot of people really get their, kind of get their, their careers leveled up in right. a sponsorship way, not necessarily in a direct peer to peer mentor way, but certainly in a case where someone knows who you are and knows who the work and knows the work that you do. And they can speak to your behalf in a room or in an organization or somewhere to kind of be your advocate in that right. way. And so that sponsorship, I found, has been a lot more important for Black designers that are really trying to go up that career path is, I think, of course, one networking, but mm -hmm. networking opportunities, finding people who can be those sort of sponsors for you has been really beneficial. What's been the most surprising thing that you've seen in this in these interviews over the last nine years? I would say at this point, anyone that comes on the show, like it's not a real surprise. Right. In terms of like what they do, I think the surprising thing is how common people's experiences are. And when I say right. people, I specifically mean black people throughout the diaspora, 
how similar their experiences and design are regardless of location. Right. There's people in the United States that are having the same experiences as folks in the Caribbean, in London, throughout Africa, in Australia. And so while geography may separate us, it's very interesting how our experiences in design have been universal aspects. Right. Uh, and I would say the other sizing thing, there are more people now that are really sort of carving their own path independent mm-hmm. of going to design school. I don't know if that's really so much of a surprise as much as it is a byproduct of our modern times. Right. But certainly uh, I've encountered more and more people who have just struck out on their own and they're starting their studio or they're freelancing or they're doing their own thing independent of, you know, having went to design school or having worked at a design organization. Right now, I feel like the learning curve to gain the skills that you need to become a viable designer that can get paid in this industry. The learning curve is pretty much flat at this point because there's so many different websites. There's YouTube. There's a lot of information you can get for free that can give you the the skills to really do the work, like on a technical level. But of course, what it really does boil down to is your business sense, your strategy, being able to navigate different scenarios that don't have to do with design, you know, like managing clients or things of that nature. No, it's interesting that you're seeing that. That's actually come through in the research that we've done the past year and a half, in which we're seeing somewhat upward of 80% of designers at any point in their career will be entrepreneurial, will start mm-hmm. their own path. And what we're also hearing is when, as a professional association, when people are coming to us for resource and knowledge, it's exactly the space you just described. Those skills that round out, not the technical skills of design, but the skills right. that round out your role as a business leader or a business owner. Yeah. I mean, you know, even I can give myself as an example here. I mean, I didn't go to design school. Everything that I've learned about visual design has been self-taught. But once I started my studio, like I didn't really know that much about contracts and, right. and what to do when you're talking to clients. And AIGA was very much a resource for me in that way. Like the AIGA, I don't know if y'all still have this or if you amended oh, it over we, the we years. We do. We definitely there's, do. There's like an AIGA standard design contract. <laughs> But I've, I've used and chopped and screwed and gotten, you know, other lawyers to look over it and make it into my own. That really, as I was starting out, was super helpful and right. really kind of establishing myself to clients as a business person that does design and not just like a set of hands that can complete your design task. Now, one of the things that's really drew me into our conversations and listening to Revision Path, and you talked about a bit, it was the diasporic approach you have, like having designers who are coming from all over the world in kind of this global context, this global conversation. Have you seen that influence Black creatives work beyond just the continuous 48? Are you seeing more designers who are working in New Jersey, but have clients in Dubai? Oh, wow. Or working in Atlanta and and are doing work for brands in Ghana? I think so, particularly now with over like the past two or three years. Like, right. of course, we are recording this still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Much of the, the sort of byproduct of that in ways has been a flattening of business across geography. Exactly. So whether or not you're able to be in a particular location with someone, if you can keep up with the time zones, you're good. Like the company I work for now is six hours ahead of where I am. The company I worked for before that was six hours ahead of me. So I don't have to 
work within my particular geographic zone to be able to find work and solve problems, et cetera, as a designer. And I think that we are starting to see that a lot more also because, and I actually just mentioned this in a, a recent interview I did, 2020, along with it, of course, being this kind of year of racial reckoning with regards to police brutality and companies kind of stepping up to say that they're going to start centering Black voices and listening to Black voices. Part of the sort of byproduct of that I've seen has been a more universal community among Black designers forming online Mm -hmm. that I didn't see prior to this. You certainly had events. You have Creative Control Fest that takes place in Columbus. You've got what Maurice Woods is doing with Interact Project in Sacramento. I think Sacramento. We'll say we'll say San Francisco Bay Area in North California. I'm sure I got the general area there. Or you've got Hue Design Summit, which is also here in Atlanta, that puts on an annual event. What you started to see was during that summer of 2020, other sorts of events spring up where the Black designers, Designers Ignite, State of Black Design that have started to come and have these events online. And what's happened is because they're online, they're more accessible, right. they're often pretty low cost, and communities have really started to aggregate or congregate, I should say, around these events. And that's made networking so much easier because you're doing it in a way that's kind of native to people. Like you're in a Slack group, maybe you jump over to Instagram or you jump over to TikTok or you jump over to okay. Twitter or something and you can network, you can keep conversations going. But I'm seeing a lot more of that uh, happening online starting in 2020. And so even now, like we're in 2022, I think that's going to be a trend that continues, particularly as we talk about this whole like great resignation. Right. Um, I'm seeing more and more people that are just like ditching whatever their nine to five might have been and saying, I'm going to strike out on my own. And what they're finding is, you know, you've got a community of people that will not only help you with that, but also a community of people that need your help. Right. So one of the things I always love about our conversations is that you're a deep thinker about the future and always kind of looking at what next. And as we, we kind of round through the, this moment and you, you started to talk a bit about it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think is next for design as a profession, right? Mm-hmm. And for the design professional, what do you think is coming next? Oh, what's coming next? I mean, I think what's coming next is already here. I, I, and I, I hate mm-hmm. to, to bring it up because I'm sure some people are going to bristle at this acronym, but NFTs and the metaverse and all of that is, it's hard to even say it's around the corner because right. it's already here. People are already heavily cashing in on it or they're learning about it and they're trying to find more information about it. I'm trying to find more information about it too myself because one interesting thing that I see with NFTs, and I don't know if this is, the case across all NFTs, but certainly for what I've seen is that there's a lot of work that's generated with NFTs that may be from a designer. So there is that still analog touch, but then there's all these different digital combinations and permutations of that image that people are then able to purchase as NFTs. So you have this kind of automated aspect to it in a way, like someone Mm -hmm. will release a collection of say like 50 NFTs and Maybe the designer sat down and designed all 50, or maybe they designed one and then they ran it through something that gave them 50 different variations. Whatever the case, it's still from that particular designer. So we're starting to see ways that artists are starting to, art, I say artists and designers too, are really making a name for themselves in this new 
burgeoning space right. that is outside of, you know, working for a nine to five. I would even say even working for yourself. I mean, we've seen, or at least I've read in like CNBC, et cetera, about people that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of NFT campaigns. And they just learned about NFTs like a month ago or something. Right. So I think that's the next thing. One thing I'm really trying to do this year on Revision Path is tap more into that theme and just learn more about it and who some of the, the players are that are really making a name for themselves that are doing that. Because I see that as being a viable way for people to, I think, certainly make money, but also to get ahead of a technology which is quickly approaching and in many ways already here, which is right. the whole concept of the metaverse. There's not just one metaverse, there's multiple metaverses. And through the research that I've done so far, just talking to different people and even spending time in some metaverse spaces, because I have a, um, a Oculus. Right. What's it called now? I'm sorry, it's called a MetaQuest now. It's not an Oculus Quest anymore. But I have one of those VR helmets. And there are still the metaverse for the, the grand new space that it is and that it wants to become still inherits a lot of problems from the current internet. Right. And even from what I'm seeing in terms of how much money and access and resources are being put into the mega metaverse, there is a point where I've started to see this become, or it could become almost like the next digital divide. Right. Where there's going to be people that have staked their claim in the metaverse and they know all about digital land rights and NFTs and all this stuff. And then there's going to be a whole generation of people that are not Luddites, but certainly have no stake or dealing or want in the metaverse. And yet you're starting to see companies, large and small, really stake lots of resources in whatever this new burgeoning virtual space might become. So definitely those two things, NFTs and the metaverse, I think are what's next that designers should really pay attention to. For one main reason outside of just wanting to stay ahead of the curve, but what could happen, and I'm not saying it is going to happen, but what could mm -hmm. happen right. is that with all of this push towards technology and automation, that it's taking the human out of design. Like it's right. taking the work that they do and maybe running it through an algorithm and being able to produce something. So I don't think we're necessarily fully there yet, but I can see us starting to approach that. Right. Like it's a few exits down the road, but we're not there yet could be there, but we're not, we're not there yet. Now, how would you think, how do designers and those of us who are design adjacent champion a continued human touch? You know, because we're going to have other economic drivers, other corporate drivers that may have no interest in maintaining that human touch. It turns mm -hmm. into kind of a quick automated commodity. How do right. these designers maintain the human engagement? Ooh, that is the $64 question. Well, you, um, you know, that that's why I love our conversations. <laughs> <laughs> I think one way to do that, at least right now, is just through finding ways to explain this to people in layman's terms. Right. One thing that I see around the metaverse and all this stuff is that a lot of the language is purposely very, I don't even say flowery. It's purposely very filled with jargon, very much filled with jargon mm -hmm. in order to obfuscate regular people from kind of knowing what's going on. That is 
totally done on purpose. So I could see ways that designers or writers could even find ways to just explain this in a much more easier format for people to understand. Because once people start throwing around NFTs and DAOs and PoApps and all this stuff, you're like, I have no idea what any of that stuff right. is. Even right. talking about the metaverse, people might think that's just one thing as opposed to, like I said before, multiple metaverses that have existed, that continue to exist right now that, you know, we're some of them we are a part of and some of them we're not, you know? So that's one way. But the human touch, I think that's going to really depend on how designers get involved in general. Right. If designers go the way of, you know, not necessarily a get-rich-quick scheme, but if they go the way of like NFTs and finding a way to cash out, I don't know if that's going to happen. Right. I feel like certainly as our conversations mature around the subject and as more and more people start to get involved with it, designers are going to have to find ways to insert that human touch in there. I don't know right now if that is possible when, again, like I said, you have so many big companies that are already staking resources into it. And, and I guess when we say design, of course, I'm thinking of visual design, but then also really, I think it might be a case of like experiential design or right. narrative design in mm-hmm. terms of one, how we talk about these spaces, how we talk about our interactions within these spaces. As I said before, the metaverse still inherits a lot of issues from the current internet. So if you think of design issues with the internet, like dark UX, right. phishing, things of that nature, those things run rampant in the metaverse. Digital blackface, someone being able to steal your identity and be your digital twin in an entirely different, right? you know, online space. Like what? Those things right now are possible. My hope is that designers and futurists and others that are thinking about these things can find a way to still put that human touch in there to, you know, make this a more holistic experience. Currently, the metaverse kind of seems to be put forth as this digital utopia or games and I don't know, Travis Scott concerts or whatever. I don't know. Like they seem to be put forth as this kind of, you know, digital utopia when that's not the case across all metaverses. I mean, even something as simple as interoperability to be able to traverse between metaverse spaces is something that people are still working on. You know, there's no, there's no metaverse alliance, like an airline alliance. Like if you fly British Airways or something. Right. Like there's no metaverse alliance or going between spaces. So that's something that people are going to have to try to figure out as they look at staking their claim and NFTs and all that kind of stuff. It's an interesting point. And it's, it's a point of convergence that I smile as we talk about it. So in the last few weeks in recording our podcast, metaverse has come up no less than six different conversations (laughs) from six different guests approaching it from technology, from ethics, from policy and privacy from distributed ledger to experience to even looking at sustainability and solving wicked problems. It's interesting how in the conversations, versions or points of the metaverse have come up as the next challenge for us to solve. I asked this question as well. I was invited to dig in and sample into a metaverse space that was kind of own digital property. And we were having a conversation about what role designers could play. And I was invited in from someone outside of our industry. And it was very interesting on how limited their view of the power of design to think, build, and establish the space. 
it was very limited in colors and pixels. Yeah. Right. And not the actual idea of the experience, sustainable space that you're building, how design can be used to shape this complex problem and world. Those who were inviting us, who were inviting me in and owned it only had a view of designers being able to have that limited experience. How do we as a profession and industry shake that? Hmm. You remember those days when you get invited in and it's a bigger problem to solve, but they only want the color palette, right? Right. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, how do you push back in an effective way to really talk about the strategic power of design, the the impact of design and the promise of design of making things better? I mean, certainly that's going to be up to designers being able to put forth and communicate themselves as experts in mm-hmm. that way. You know, just like this person who invited you in, maybe an expert or well-known in this metaverse, you know, concept. They're bringing you in for your expertise and your knowledge right. in design. So you kind of have to kind of flex that a little bit, I think, in order to really sort of make that happen. I want to go back to something earlier when we were talking about how designers can sort of get ahead of this. And I know right. I talked about digital blackface and digital twins and stuff. Even something, you know, from a visual aspect like avatar design is something where designers could start to look at because avatars may not have different ranges of skin tones or hairstyles or body shapes or anything like that. I feel like that could be one sort of aspect, even though that does, I mean, there's going to be still some sort of avatar representation within these, these different metaverses, but to jump ahead to what you said about how we can sort of advocate for that, really, we have to show up as the expert in what we know, particularly if we're invited in these, these types of spaces and ask the tough questions. Because as problem solvers, you know, as designers are, that's sort of what we're always going to be tasked to do right. is to figure out how we can sort of solve these big thorny problems. You know, you mentioned ethics and, and other sorts of problems that are, are kind of things that we have to think about in the, in the metaverse. Those are going to be things that I think we'll still be trying to noodle on for a long time to figure out. And those solutions are going to be design solutions in some aspect. So by asking those questions and trying to gain more information and then also, like I said, just putting forth our own expertise and knowledge and the design that we have, the, the design concepts and things that we know will help towards that. It is still super early to tell because I feel right. like when folks are thinking of metaverse and, and NFTs, they're still thinking of them in, I don't want to say basic ways, but they're looking at sort of what is the most representative aspect Right. Of that technology. So like for NFTs, it's it's largely profile pictures. Right. But we're an NFT in, can... We're still in can, the infancy, right. Yeah, we're still in the infancy. So like NFTs could come in a number of different forms. Like I think I saw something today where I think StockX is like experimenting with NFTs for shoes. Oh, wow. Okay. I know both Adidas and Nike are also putting large amounts of money and talent into like metaverse apparel and things of that nature. I think it's still... Really too early to tell overall. The space is still so new. The people that are in it are, I don't want to say they're not the the most upstanding, but I think we hear about, <laughs> unfortunately, more kind of like shady dealings than positive things out of the metaverse. And I don't know if that necessarily is a particularly good thing, but I feel like that was also the case of like the early web too. 
Right. Companies are trying to figure out how they could get their businesses online. Like how do we take orders online or something like that? This is just a different iteration of that that involves other technology and different terms and such. But it's going to be up to designers to really try to figure out how to solve those problems. And the way to do that is to just get involved in these spaces where you can ask questions. I went to a metaverse conference in December that was right. in the metaverse. And yeah, that's I how I started learning saying, about- You were telling me about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I started learning about this stuff, like trying to see where could I get in individually, but then also where could designers, particularly Black designers, kind of get in, in a way that we can sort of help with building out these spaces and and hopefully advocating for ourselves and making our presence known in right. some way. Like it's a big opportunity now and it will be going into the future. So if there's a way to get in on the ground floor, like I'd like to try to figure out how. So I have this question because I can't help but see parallels to 1999 and a young Maurice Cherry talking to your <laughs> professor about the web and the other spaces. What advice do you have for students who are in this space where the innovation transcends the curriculum. The innovation transcends maybe the experience of those who are firsthand or professor space in there. What advice do you have for critical thinkers, designers? And I, I pause for a second to not just couch it as designers, but for anyone who's looking to a future that may not have a curriculum path today. What mm. advice do you have? I think... And so two things, and one is probably going to be pretty obvious, which is really like start writing down as much stuff as you can. Mm -hmm. Just write down your thought processes, write right. down random ideas, write it in a notebook, find ways to continue to come back to it, to connect the dots. For me, that's been a super helpful thing to be able to do that, to be able to really see what I thought about a particular thing All at right. one point in time. And then maybe in the future, as I've gained more knowledge or something, find a way to connect that to another concept. So I think that's one thing. And then second thing is really to try to find a way to make your own project of some sort, no matter what the size of it is. Okay. That will teach you so much about, I think, yourself and your own limitations, your strengths, your weaknesses as it relates to work as a whole, right. uh, creating your own project uh, as kind of one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself, because one, it establishes, or it can establish you, I should say, as a brand, like as a designer, you can establish yourself that way by creating your own project. But two, you're also teaching yourself and you're learning concepts that you necessarily wouldn't get in school. And these are things that right. you're normally learning from networking with people, talking with people, trial and error. These are the ways that those learnings kind of get burned into your brain in a way. And then it helps you as you either create future things on your own, or if you end up working somewhere in-house, you know, right. it can help out with that way. But certainly writing down your ideas, like jotting them down, coming back to them, finding ways to always kind of keep that train of thought going, I think is super important for students and for up-and-coming designers to really find your own, I don't want to say find your own path, because that sounds corny, but, <laughs> but, but like find your find your own way because that's not something that school is going to teach you. Like school is right. not going to teach you how you think school can help you with that. Right. You know, they can give you the content they can give you the tools, but like at the end of the day, it's still up to you. So doing these two things, I think will help sort of supplant your own education and give you 
more tools that you can use throughout your career as you move forward. So, and you know, it's interesting. You're talking about writing down what you're thinking about and what's important. So I'll come back to Revision Path. What do you want to explore and uncover in the next 400 conversations? <laughs> um, certainly, I would love to have a book in the future. Okay. And then this is, I mean, this is, I guess, the cat's out of the bag a little bit. I am sort of working with an editor on a book proposal. It's a bit slow going at the moment. Uh-huh. But my hope in the future is to have a revision path book of some sort. And then as far as revision path itself, I do, my ultimate goal with it is to expand it out to become a multimedia network. So revision path still kind of sits as the crown jewel of this network. And maybe we have, mm-hmm. you know, two or three other shows within a network. But then we also have an editorial part that focuses on writing because Revision Path, once upon a time, did have a blog that had right. original writing on it. Maybe bring back Recognize, which is our uh, our design anthology that we had uh, in 2019 and 2020. Lump in 28 Days of the Web, which is Revision Path's sister site, where we recognize a different Black designer or developer every year in February for Black History Month. So we have that editorial arm and then also branch out to do video. So okay. whether that's like short documentaries, a weekly live show on Twitch, you know, a web series, something along those lines. So that's my ultimate goal is to be able to expand Revision Path out in that way. But right now with the podcast as it is, I am, of course, super satisfied with it. I could definitely see 400 more episodes right. down the road. Knock on wood, but, <laughs> but that's kind of what I see in the future in general for for revision path. Wow. It's always great to be able to spend time and, and talk with you about your path and the work you're doing. I'll ask you this last question. When you think about writing about this space and kind of putting your ideas to paper, what idea is really coming top of mind today? What idea do you have that you'd like to further as we go into 2022? Uh, definitely this book. Okay. Right. <laughs> I would, I would, I would love to get this book into a proposal and to an editor. My mom has wanted me to write a book probably since I was a kid. So I know that would be, that would be. (laughs) So, so so this is what we're going to do, Maurice. We're going to get our moms together because my mom is, was an English and Spanish teacher by training and Uh a writer and English professor. And she would like nothing more than me to have a book too. So we're going to get our moms together. While we yeah. figure out what we write. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think definitely that. And then also I am really like I'm I'm really interested in trying to just wrap my head around the whole like web three NFT mm-hmm. metaverse thing in a way that makes sense right. to me. Because I figure if I can make it make sense to me, I can make it make sense to a lot of other people. And so I'm still like figuring that out. Like I'm going to a web three conference. I think it's next week. Next week, I'm going to a web okay. conference. Like I'm trying to to learn more about all of these concepts and and see basically where black designers can try to get in on this. So I'd say those two things this year are what I really want to try to forward. Well, I want to take the opportunity to invite you back for an expanded conversation. Since we keep touching on this point of what's next in the metaverse, I'd love to bring you together with my other guests who've been talking about metaverse and maybe we can figure this thing out a bit. Yeah, I'm up for it. Let's do it. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. I'm looking up and I can't believe that we've been talking this long. 
but just about the wonderful path you've had, the work you've had, and the impact. Um, one of the things that's really kind of impressive, as we mentioned before, Revision Path and your work there was the first podcast to be taken into the Smithsonian Namox collection, which is kind of a, a powerful testament to it. But more importantly, when we think about just the way that you've elevated conversations and the folks who were driving the dialogue in a way that hadn't been done before. I applaud you for that. And you've been a good inspiration for me and even thinking about our podcast today. So I'm delighted to have you here, my friend, designer, writer, still a mathematician, critical <laughs> thinker, future book author. Hey. <laughs> and leader of a new metaverse, Maurice Cherry. Thank you, my friend, for joining us for this episode of Design Adjacent. Benny, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun, and I look forward to coming back in the future. Definitely. Thank you all for joining us for Design Adjacent. We invite you to our next episode, where we'll continue to explore the power and impact of design, both today and tomorrow in the world around us. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent Podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Li Shan Huang. Until next time.